0: This is Laura Dierda with the Becker's Cardiology and Heart Surgery podcast. I'm thrilled today to be joined by Dr. Jeffrey Carstens, Executive Medical Director of CHI Health Heart Institute. Dr. Karstens, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast today.
1: Thank you. It's great to be here.
0: Now, before we dive into the questions, could you tell me a little bit more about yourself and your background?
1: You bet. Um, I'm an interventional cardiologist by training. I've been in practice uh, a little over 25 years. Did my early training in the Navy. Was a chief resident in the Navy, and then uh, after graduation was at a hospital as a solo cardiologist, so director of cardiology by default, and uh, director of the of the uh, ICU at that site. Left the Navy after nine years, went into uh, solo practice, and then have kind of evolved over time through uh, various uh, medical leadership roles, either hospital-based or provider-based, to the point now where I'm in charge of cardiovascular services for CHI Health, which is based primarily out of Nebraska, and then includes Southwest Iowa and Northern Kansas.
0: Well, fantastic. We're really excited to have you here today. Now, what are your top three biggest issues in heart surgery and care?
1: Yeah, so I think if we if we look at things uh, in heart surgery today and what are kind of the hot button issues, um, one is certainly the aging physician population. So our cardiac surgeons uh, are g- gradually getting older every year, um, and the pipeline is not robust. So there's more surgeons retiring than there are coming out of training, and, and that's a uh, unsustainable uh, model uh, for the future. I think the next thing that's, that's sort of interesting is we have this increase in structural heart, and structural heart procedures are getting more and more common, particularly uh, around the aortic valve, but the mitral valve and tricuspid valve are are coming close behind. If you look at two years ago, there were more tavers done than savers, so more transcatheter valves and surgical valves. And what I kind of worry about in the future, there there becomes this model where you do a taver, and then you do a valve and valve taver, and then at some point, if we're if we're dealing with these low-risk population of young people, they could easily get to a third valve. And as our surgeons do fewer and fewer surgical valves. I wonder what things will look like in 15 or 20 years when we're asking them to take two implanted valves out of a patient uh, that's at high risk and they're not really doing a lot of surgical valves in the first place. So I think that's not kind of a burning platform today, but it's a concern for the future. And then um, how do you keep competent uh, as you're doing less and less surgical surgical cases because of the, the advances in intervention high-risk intervention with Impella and those kind of assisted interventions. We're leaving the surgeons kind of the very, very worst case scenarios. And I I worry that that kind of drags on the surgical, uh, our surgical colleagues and uh, how do they avoid burnout?
0: I I think that's a great point, Dr. Carson, especially, you know, when you're talking about both On one end, you know, not having um, as robust of a pipeline for um, physicians coming into the specialty and then on the other end, you know, really seeing that burnout could be a challenge for um, cardiologists and heart surgeons in the future. Is there anything that you're seeing the specialty doing or any ways that you're seeing things evolve um, to kind of meet the, the challenges that those two trends pose or is that something really, you know, in the future that the specialty will have to grapple with more?
1: Well, I think especially you will have to grapple with it. Um, one of the things we do see with, with uh, training programs is there seems to be sometimes ebbs and flows. And so you get to a point where there seems to be a shortage and then, and then more people will go into that type of specialty and then you'll see a catch up. Um, I think the heart team model, uh, which has really been promoted heavily by both surgical and cardiology colleges, um, where we work together more collaboratively to make decisions about the best patient care I think this team-based approach is helpful in terms of both interactions and decision-making, and, and that can help. But I do worry that you just have fewer and fewer surgeons. And what we start seeing is uh, more of the younger ones start looking at like locum tenants work and saying, I'll just travel around the country a little bit, kind of work when I want to make a bunch of money, the times that I'm working, and then work less the other times. And even some of the senior surgeons doing that as well. So again, that adds sort of some some stress stress to the pipeline and stress to the programs in terms of how you maintain quality and outcomes.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's so interesting to think about. Um, And from your vantage point, you know, as the executive medical director at CHI Health Heart Institute, how do you see heart care evolving in the next 18 months or so?
1: I think that there's a few things that we look at. One of the things, as I mentioned, kind of that locum tenens model, but also Uh, other staffing model around travelers. So one of the things we saw with COVID was some people were willing to travel and some people had to travel, but people were willing to go and work in other locales and make a bunch of money. And then what we've seen around the country, I think, is, you know, people from Nebraska maybe went out to New York and helped out and then people from Texas would maybe come up to Nebraska and people from from somewhere else would go to Texas and people started moving around the country and everybody's moving and uh if you're willing to do something like that and you can make a lot of money and all the hospitals start getting understaffed because people are moving around and and that's a really interesting trend and I don't know if that'll stay or if that'll that'll go I've talked to people in the um, medical staffing industry and and they say demand is as good as it's ever been. Maybe the prices are coming down a little bit, but there's still a lot of demand. I know in our market, we're still using a lot of traveling nurses, um, and we have people in our market that are traveling somewhere else. So I wonder if that's the future of people saying, "Well, I'll work part of the year for more money and then then have some more time off. That becomes sort of a bit of a lifestyle decision for nurses and respiratory therapists and other people, again, that you need to run your hospital um, or run, run care for your patient. I think that's going to sort itself out, you know, over the next twelve to eighteen months. I think another thing that uh, we need to kind of figure out how it lands is telehealth. So there was a huge push for telehealth during the height of the pandemic. Uh, our organization and our clinic, we went to a huge number of telehealth visits, and then uh, as fast as we ramped it back up, it ramped itself back down. So we don't see a tremendous number of patients wanting to do telehealth. We track this still, and we'll do less than two to three percent of our visits will be telehealth visits now whereas during the height of the pandemic it was probably 70 to 80 percent of our visits now those visits were way down but but they were almost all telehealth and now we offer telehealth and most people say i'd rather come in but there's going to have to be some sort of shakeout in terms of how telehealth works and i think it depends on the part of country you're in the country you're in the age of your population and then reimbursements really going to make a difference too so Right now, telehealth is reimbursed, similar to an in-office visit. But if that changes, then I think we'll see changes in telehealth in other parts of the country as well. The other thing that I see booming and a big trend is the subspecialty cardiology clinics. So we're seeing growth in things like cardio-oncology and cardiometabolic clinics and cardiac obstetrics. And I think more and more sites are going to be dipping their toes into this water and trying to decide if this is something for them or if it's a service that they can offer we've started a cardio oncology clinic that's really grown quickly we're starting a cardiometabolic metabolic clinic uh, this summer that uh, we're hopeful for uh, we haven't gotten into cardio obstetrics yet but it's certainly something that you're seeing more places do and so all these little more subspecialty more niche sort of clinics that are that are growing up and providing better care to a specific set of populations but also then identifying uh, maybe new treatment strategies, particularly if you look at things like cardiac amyloidosis and some of those types of things that are that are coming more to the forefront and, and getting attention.
0: Got it. That's really interesting to think about, you know, especially how some of the more subspecialty clinics are evolving. Um, I'd love to come back and, and speak with you once you do have that cardiometabolic um, center more up and running. I think that would be really interesting to, to learn more about um, how your process was for developing that.
1: Yeah, we're really excited about that, and there's just better and better in da- data and science around how to care for the diabetic patients. Some of these diabetic drugs, that have really beneficial cardiac effects, um, and trying to make sure that more and more of our patients get on these drugs. I think we're underserving these patients, and the American College of Cardiology has come out and said cardiologists really need to get on the forefront of this. I remember way back when cardiology started taking over lipid management, which seemed kind of crazy. And and cardiologists like, well, this is for endocrinologists or maybe for internal medicine. But now nobody thinks twice about lipid management as a cardiologist. And when we got into the NOAC or DOAC era for atrial fibrillation of all these different drugs that weren't Coumadin to treat patients with the risk of atrial fibrillation, had kind of learned different drug mechanisms. Again, I had a number of partners that were pretty anxious about it at first, From today it's all second nature. I think I think some of these newer diabetic drugs are going to get that way as well. It's going to be a little bit, I say that it's a cardiac drug that help, that happens to have a beneficial effect for diabetes as opposed to the other way around.
0: Fascinating. Yes, thank you so much for um, diving into that for us. Now, what are you most excited about today and what makes you nervous?
1: So the cardiometabolic, I'm really excited about, and I'm, I think that that's an exciting area. I think uh, another area is we're seeing the increase in uh, coronary CT angiograms. So avoiding an invasive angiogram for patients and, and, and looking more towards a CT first strategy, which is already something that's pretty prevalent in Europe and is kind of moving along in the United States as opposed to uh, stress testing that can have a fair number of false positive and false negatives or going directly to an invasive angiogram, but instead doing this coronary CT angiogram first as a as a tool, which helps you both identify those patients that need to go on for intervention, but also helps you identify those patients that are at risk in the future and can guide therapy in terms of uh, risk prevention. The other thing that I'm excited about that we've been working on here for the last couple of years is a team care model. So I talked about um, the heart team, but this is a different model. This is This is in our office. And it's partnering with our physician extenders, our advanced practice providers, either nurse practitioners or physicians assistants, where we've developed teams of physicians and physician extenders along with nurses and schedulers to deliver care to more or less a pod of patients. So that uh, the physicians can be busier seeing new patients or the higher acuity patients and the routine follow-ups and the hospital follow-ups and those types of things are done by the nurse practitioners and PAs. It's really allowed us to see more new patients. It's allowed us to see more patients overall. And the patient satisfaction with this has been very high. The patients are very satisfied as long as they know that they're getting in to see somebody on your team so we have multiple different teams because we cover a number of different hospitals um, in our market and these teams work very well to improve access and improve patient satisfaction and that's a model that 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 we've really uh gotten through the pandemic and we're seeing more patients than we've ever seen even pre-pandemic things that make me nervous um Staffing models, like I mentioned, it's more and more difficult to hire people both in the hospital and in the office. There's so many opportunities in so many ways for people that have figured out how to work from home, and um, sometimes they need to work from home, that trying to keep enough staff both in your office uh, and in the hospitals is a real challenge, and we have to figure out how we can do that consistently for um, both safety and quality. And then I, I, you know, nervous about the pipeline. So you talked about. Cardiac surgeons in the pipeline. Um, I worry the nurses, as they, you know, there's an aging nursing population as well, and we need to get new nurses in. They're excited about cardiovascular care. And it seems like a lot of the fellows want to sub, sub, sub specialize into smaller areas, and we need good, solid general cardiologists to to care for a lot of the patient needs that we're seeing. I I say that at the same time as I'm talking about super subspecialized clinics like cardio-oncology and cardiometabolic, but everybody can find a little bit of that type of niche, but we also need people that are kind of solid general cardiologists to continue to care for this aging patient population that we have as the baby boomers get older and older and that we see just general cardiology problems.
0: Interesting. Yeah, I think that's um, a great point. And definitely, I know, as you mentioned, we talked about the physician pipeline to some degree. And then it's interesting to hear that, you know, um, trying to hire people to work in the office um, as well as the hospital can also be a challenge since you do need somebody or, or would like somebody there to uh, work with the patients and those kinds of things. Absolutely. Well, before we wrap up here, I was wondering, could you share three pieces of advice for emerging physician leaders today?
1: Yeah, I think that I thought about this a little bit because you gave me that question in advance, and and I think that there's three things as as I've kind of contemplated this that that are important. One one to me is, particularly as a young leader, you need to be as involved as you possibly can. You need to you need to take the opportunity to serve on a variety of different committees or working groups or selection groups or, or different kind of things so that you're learning how things work both within either your, your clinical uh, scenario or your hospital scenario. You need to be involved. You need to learn who the decision makers are. You need to see how things get done uh, because that's how you get things done um, in the future. And and the more well-rounded you could be, the better. So you'll you learn about quality and you'll learn about supply chain management and you'll learn about peer review, and all of those types of things, because all of it's important. I think that it's important to manage up your team. So you want to make your team as as successful as possible, but also give them as much success as you can. Share your wins. Don't try to take credit for everything. Give credit to your team, uh, because that makes your team uh more enthusiastic more invigorated and and that's how you get things also done in the future is is if people feel like they're part of a of a winning team uh, and they're going to get credit then they're going to work that much harder to be successful and then probably one of the biggest early lessons that i found is that you need to kind of figure out who you are and what's important to you and kind of find your true north if you're going to make a decision that's against your beliefs uh, you're going to struggle with it. You may have to support a decision that's against your beliefs, but you if you speak up and and say your mind and, and explain why you don't agree with the decision and then say well i can I can endorse it but but i but I want to be on record <laughs> at least internally that uh, it may not be the best decision. Then I think you can feel better about things if it doesn't go uh, as expected I, I learned that early with the decision that I probably didn't push back on hard enough. Uh, and it was a it was a decision that just didn 't go well, it had to be reversed within a few weeks, and everybody kind of looked the worst for it and Maybe if I'd been more vocal, we could have avoided it, the, that kind of mess that we got ourselves in and so i I think it's important also i've supported things since that time that i'm not a hundred percent behind, but at least I know that people know where I stand and and as long as you're not you know one hundred percent opposed, that's okay. You just have to be true to yourself it's kind of like I always felt like if I did a procedure on a patient, I wanted to make sure that there was a valid indication. There's the occasional complication that you're always going to feel bad about, but you feel awful if, if, if the procedure wasn't really necessary. And you can live with it if the procedure was necessary and everybody was understanding up front that, that sometimes things don't go as they should.
0: And Dr. Kirsten, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. This has been a really fascinating discussion, and I look forward to connecting with you again soon.
1: Yeah. Thanks for your time. Enjoyed it.